Welcome to Journal Spotting. Want to do more to combat climate change, but current events and your state of Weltschmerz is holding you back? Do you need some positive practice changing actionable advice? Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines and more. We scout the journals so you don't have to. This is The Climate Zone. Welcome back to The Climate Zone. It's March, it's still pretty cold outside, our heating bills are skyrocketing and as we record this, the horrific invasion of Ukraine by Putin rages on. So normally there's a sort of cheery intro or like a pretty bad joke at this point, but I thought we could spare you my medical satire and just say that we're pretty excited to be here to cover The Climate Zone with you and we've got a good episode lined up, I think. Thanks, John. Um, yeah, look, just to say, all our thoughts and hopes goes out to all of those people affected from you know, all around the world, really, but especially, of course, in Ukraine. Um, actually, all, all of this which is going on reminds me of this uh, this German word. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of it. Uh, Feldschmerz, I'm probably t- saying it terribly, but Feldschmerz. Anybody know what that means? Has anybody heard of that? No, um, I didn't, didn't do German. It, no idea what it means, Barney. What does it mean? So it essentially means world pain or world weariness. I think it pretty much sums up a lot of what's going on in the world right now. Apart from one positive from today, it is again we are recording on International Women's Day. Congratulations and um, I'm not sure if you say congratulations for that. Merry International Women's Day, guys. And who better to lead on this excellent Climate Zone episode coming up than the fantastic LJ and Katia. But before we start on the episode, uh, Katia, do you want to explain to our listeners what exactly the Climate Zone is? Yeah, sure, of course, Barney. So along with our regular roundups of the literature and specialist interviews, Journal Spotting has created this special Climate Zone series, where we essentially look at the link between climate change and health, which can be everything from the way climate change affects different disease processes, as we heard in our awesome recent cardiovascular disease and air pollution episode, but also to how our healthcare system can reduce its contribution to climate change and achieve the much desired triple bottom line. For the uninitiated, this is the concept that incorporates the planet, i.e. the environmental impact, into the definition of value as well as the social and economic impact. And our episode today is particularly relevant to that. I'm joined by our special climate team, so I'll allow them to introduce themselves. Thanks, Katia. Um, Great to be here again. I'm Dr. LJ Smith. I'm a consultant respiratory physician. And I'm Dr. Jonathan Hudson. I'm a cardiology registrar, and I don't think Barney should ever introduce International Women's Day ever. Last time, I was trying to make some really poignant you know, comments for International Women's Day in the background. John and Katia were like flashing up Beyonce and things because I kept making cliches. Anyway, thanks guys for that that support. I am Dr. Barnaby Hirons, a respiratory registrar and research fellow, and it's great to be here. And I'm Dr. Katia Florman. I'm an internal medicine trainee. Before we crack on with the interview and you get to hear all these amazing facts from it, Climate challenges. So just to recap the listeners, so far we quit plastic for a month and we made our diets more environmentally friendly. Listen back to previous Climate Zone episodes to understand what that was all about. However, last episode, LJ challenged us to get in contact with an MP or person in power about a climate topic of our choosing. You can hear how we got on and we'll find out our new challenge at the end of this episode. 
Okay, Katya and LJ, so you have both been away to find out more about the impact of inhalers on the climate. Do you want to tell us what we can expect from the interview that you guys have done? Yes, thanks, John. LJ and I were lucky enough to interview Dr. Alex Wilkinson on inhalers and climate change. This is a pretty hot topic for respiratory physicians, but many general medics are less aware of what the issues and challenges are. LJ, can you explain to our listeners what the fuss about inhalers is all about? Yeah, of course. I mean, Alex will go into much more detail, but essentially there are two different types of inhalers, one that has a much higher global warming potential than the other. And we're going to explore the details of these differences, how to overcome potential challenges in changing inhalers, and hopefully show that thinking about sustainability doesn't have to be at odds with providing optimal care to patients with airways disease, and in fact can really enhance the care you deliver. Brilliant. That sounds like a lot to seek our teeth into. All inhale should I say LJ uh, just before we go to the interview uh, let me just remind our listeners that if you like what you hear then definitely rate review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and do feel free to share with friends colleagues or family um, or even you can email us journalspotting at gmail.com uh, genuinely we would love to hear how the climate series is informing or motivating you at home or at work so now let's get on with the episode So I'm really pleased today to be joined by Dr. Alex Wilkinson, who's a consultant respiratory physician at the Lister Hospital. Um, his specialist clinical interests include lung infection, bronchiectasis and TB, um, but he's made a real name for himself working nationally with the BTS as lead on sustainable respiratory care and is an associate of the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare. And he's published numerous publications in this area, particularly focused on reducing the environmental impact of inhaled medications. So it's a great opportunity for us to learn from what he's done already. And I just wanted to start by asking you, how did you first get interested in sustainable healthcare? And why do you think this is important for healthcare professionals to be involved in? Thank you very much, LJ, for that generous introduction. Um, I, I, it sort of stems back to childhood, really, and an interest in big justice issues. As a, as a spotty teenager, I was very interested in Jubilee Debt Campaign and Third World Debt. And I think it just sort of carried on from there. You know, went to started medical school and had this awakening that climate justice, which is something you've talked about on the podcast before, is a much bigger, more important issue even than Third World Debt. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I've got this long-standing passion about it. And and then I guess it extended into my role as a respiratory physician, realising that there are big differences in how we manage asthma, in, in particular in the UK compared to the rest of Europe, and also big differences in the climate, in the carbon footprint of how we manage asthma. That's great. Um, really interesting to hear that you've been thinking about these issues from such a young age. I'm sure that's going to be very inspiring to our listeners. Um, as as we know, the NHS net zero commitment will require all of us to change some of the ways we work. But there are a few things that are specifically highlighted as being really big contributors to the NHS carbon footprint. Two that stand out, as some listeners will know, are anaesthetic gases and inhalers. And for those of us listening who might not know that much about this already, can you summarise the problem with inhalers and why they make such a big contribution to the carbon footprint of healthcare? Yeah, the reason the inhalers have such a big carbon footprint is is really due to the the pressurised metered dose inhalers. So they're the inhalers with a 
metal can that you press down into a plastic canister that sprays out the medicine. So the most, by far the most common sort of inhaler that we use in the UK. And they contain a propellant gas, a hydrofluorocarbon, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas. And different inhalers will have different propellants in, but the the carbon footprint of that gas is much more powerful than carbon dioxide, between 1,300 and 3,350 times more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. So um, that's why these inhalers have such a large carbon footprint. So something like a Ventolin Evahaler, the blue puffer, which is the most commonly used inhaler in the UK, has a carbon footprint equivalent to 28 kilograms of carbon dioxide. Um, but of course, it's not the that's not the only sort of inhaler. We've got uh, dry powder inhalers, which don't use any propellant, um, and they have a far far smaller carbon footprint. And um, soft mist inhalers, which use a, a watery mist that's driven by a spring, again very small carbon footprint. And um, so. There are potential opportunities as well here to greatly reduce the carbon footprint of care um, by selecting the most appropriate inhaler that's going to work, that's got the smallest carbon footprint. Also, by making sure we're not overusing or wasting these inhalers. That's really clear. Thanks very much. I, I know that when I started looking at this, I was really shocked by the difference of some inhalers that are delivering the same drug and the same dose but the type of device we use to deliver that medication into the patient's lungs makes such a difference. So the difference between a Ventolin and another type of salbutamol inhaler, and similarly, you know, I use Foster a lot in my practice. It's one of our favourite inhalers. And the next inhaler, um, which is a dry powder inhaler, has a much lower carbon footprint than the MTI. I'm not sure that's something everybody knows and, and realises that it, we're trying to get the best for our patients, but we can give the same drug the same dose with a different device. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and like you say, that so the Ventolin Evahaler, which is a 200 doses of salbutamol in a blue puffer, has a carbon footprint of 28 kilos. Salamol, it's a blue puffer with 200 doses of salbutamol in, um, has a carbon footprint of about 11 kilos. And and similarly, something like flut flutiform, which is, you know, very similar medically to the um, Foster, flutiform has got a carbon footprint of 37 kilos of carbon dioxide per device. And Foster, depending on the dose, is between about 11 and 13 kilos. Uh, for the That's for the meter dose inhaler spray. The dry powder inhalers are all less than a kilo, far smaller. So huge differences for very similar products. Mm. And the famous example you use, isn't it, that the 28 kilos, which is the Ventolin inhaler, is the same carbon footprint as driving to Sheffield and back in a car? Um, just to Sheffield. You can't come back once you get to Sheffield. <laughs> yeah, and so that's the tailpipe emissions for a sort of typical uh, car. Yeah, and whether that's the best way to talk about it, I'd love to talk about you know, trees planted in a more positive way, but it's so difficult to get accurate metrics on trees planted. Um, whereas cars, you know, it's got well-defined numbers that people are maybe a bit familiar about when they're trying to choose yeah. their car. So that's that's the one that I use often. I, I, I found that that's the one that people do talk about in meetings about inhalers. It always comes up. Oh, I didn't really think that this was an issue until I heard about the journey to Sheffield. And <laughs> I, think very, I think it's quite powerful, even though I probably exaggerated it no, <laughs> accidentally. Um, I think 
people hearing this and often when people hear the, these sort of stats for the first time one of the things they think is well this is great we just have this really simple solution we can just switch everyone over so enthusiastic doctors in training might be hearing this and thinking brilliant the next patient I see on a, a pressurized meter dose inhaler I'll just switch them to a dry powder inhaler but obviously we know having having looked at this and having worked in respiratory care for a long time that it's not that simple and actually there are real dangers in doing switches that are not well thought through and done with the patient involved. Can you just tell us a little bit about why it's so important to work with patients on getting the right inhaler for them as an individual? The first priority has to be getting the care right for the patients and that's absolutely fundamental that's our first priority. And in terms of delivering the medicine to the patient that means getting the right drug for the right patient in in the right device um, and there are some people who can't use dry powder inhalers so for a dry powder inhaler the energy to get the medicine into the airways comes from the patient so you need to be able to breathe in hard and fast through the inhaler to get the medicine into the lungs and there are some people particularly young children under 12 and some elderly patients with severe disease perhaps who who can't generate the inspiratory flow to use dry powder inhalers effectively. Of course, the opposite is also true, and it's extremely common that patients who are giving a, a metered dose inhaler can't press the button, actuate the inhaler, and coordinate that reliably with breathing in. And we see this all the time with patients who've been on metered dose inhalers for years and they don't coordinate and you can just see the medicines pouring out the back of the inhaler in this mist into the air. Um, and so it's a massive problem of, of delivering it effectively into the airways. And so you've got to match the right um, device to the right patient. Now, having said all that, most patients can use most devices and you can give a patient a choice. And I liked, I use quite a lot of placebos in my clinical practice. And I particularly like those placebos that whistle if the patient's got sufficient inspiratory flow. Uh, so, and, you know, they're very useful on, on take or on the ward to check the patients using their inhaler correctly or whether they might do better with a different sort of inhaler. And you can have that conversation with them then. You say, look, you can this inhaler you can use you might find it more convenient um you don't have to press and breathe at the same time it, you know maybe it's got a dose counter for instance which ventolin doesn't have so you can keep an eye of when it's uh, going to run out and, and I, I think another important thing to think about is what what the patient wants and there've been the interesting study from germany just in the last year or so where they gave patients a wide range really wide range of devices and, and tried them you know gave them a load of placebos and said use all these which which do you like most and the vast majority went for a multi-dose dry powder inhaler as their first choice so it's also about what is the patient actually going to use is it convenient enough because for a lot of patients using a spacer uh, and a meter dose inhaler is just not something they're they're willing to do um and uh, you know meter dose inhaler can be a pretty inconvenient to use so let's say you've not used it for a few days okay well you're then meant to just spray the first dose into the atmosphere uh to reset it you're then meant to wait for 30 to 60 seconds depending on the inhaler before you take your first dose and you shake it again and you wait another 30 to 60 seconds so, so they're not always the most convenient so there, there are lots of things to think about when you're uh talking to patients about which inhaler is going to work best 
and, and it's vital you involve the patient in the decision. It's vital that you yourself as a health healthcare professional seeing these patients knows the correct technique so that you can teach it. And critically, you can also assess the patient using their inhaler and make sure they're using it correctly. And there are definitely studies that show that perhaps as healthcare professionals, we're not as expert at this as we think we are. And obviously that's been made more difficult in recent years with innovations and with more more devices, more types of device, more options. So this is an area that, that definitely needs ongoing education and practice. I mean, I fall back all the time on the Right Breathe website for really excellent, high quality patient videos. And so I demonstrate myself, but I also reinforce that with, with patient videos because this is, as you say, all about education and shared decision-making. Yeah, that's a great website. And for and for patients, I think the Asthma UK website is a great one. Right Breathe is sort of more aimed at healthcare professionals. Um, Asthma UK, you know, it's got inhalers for COPD patients as well, but great videos on there. Um, I was interested to read that the proportion of PMDIs prescribed in Europe is much lower than in the UK. And why do you think that is? Is it um, about all the, the patient education you've just been talking about? Or do you think there's something else going on? And what can we learn from our colleagues over there? Yeah, I, so I think there's something else going on. And and what's often not talked about is, is that if you go back to the year 2000 in the UK and look at asthma treatment then, let's take the most commonly used inhalers, the, the blue reliever inhaler salbutamol and the brown inhale steroids. So in, in the year 2000, two thirds of the brown inhalers were dry powder inhalers and 40% of the blue reliever inhalers were dry powder inhalers. And over the last 20 years, we've had a switch to almost completely meter dose inhalers. You know, we're 90 to 95% meter dose inhalers for the blue and the brown uh, inhalers in the UK. And, and that hasn't happened across the rest of Europe. And and actually, there have been observational studies showing that as this happened, as we switched people over, asthma control deteriorated. Mm. And why have we done that switch? Well, we've we've done it to reduce drug costs. And I, hesit- okay. and, and I don't say save money because I'm not sure it has saved money. We've done it to reduce drug costs over that period. Mm-hmm. So we've had this almost... You know, well, a really dramatic switch over to meter dose inhalers. So that I think that's one reason we're different. Another big reason is that we're much more reliant on the blue reliever inhalers. So mm. in the UK, 60% of uh, of inhalers are blue reliever inhalers overall. Um, across the rest of Europe, it varies, but it's typically in the 30s, 40% uh, blue inhalers. So they're using a much greater proportion of controller medication uh, compared to reliever medication, which is a reflection that they've got the asthma under better control or their airways disease under better control. And and their preventer medication, the most commonly used preventer medication in most or many European countries is a combination dry powder inhaler. And a dry powder inhaler is the main one they're using in Europe for, for disease control, whereas we're using mainly um, the, 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 the sprays. So we've got a major problem there, both with poor disease control and with, you know, not matching our inhaler devices to patients correctly. That's really fascinating to hear about. Um, And again, when I first heard that switch, if we just go back to not very many years ago, it it was really shocking. And I think these things can come in incrementally and, and then we develop habits and then that's just what we do. And so therefore, we don't think so much about 
the reasons behind those decision making. But you did mention cost there. And I just wanted to pick up on that because I think one of the things that's really important to think about is is value rather than cost. And certainly, obviously, that's a real tenet of sustainable healthcare that we think about the triple bottom line and we look at what value is. Um, and people, even in a meeting this week, when we talk about, oh, we might want to make some changes and think about um, the different ways that we can improve clinical outcomes and also improve the environmental impact, people say, well, the NHS is pretty cash strapped. If we're going to make these changes, is there a cost? And I very handily had your paper on um, the cost implications of switching to lower carbon inhalers. Um, and I was very pleased to share that. So can you just summarise kind of the headlines from that paper, what you found from your analysis? Yeah, so th this was a paper looking looking just at the cost of the drugs. And essentially what it showed, if you switch to dry powder inhalers, the blue reliever inhalers are a bit more expensive, as in £3 per inhaler compared to £1.50 per inhaler. But the combination uh, dry powder inhalers and the and the steroid the steroid inhalers were much the same price. The combination inhalers there were massive opportunities to save a lot of money that could offset any you know all the additional costs to the uh, um, to the relievers because the combination inhalers are the ones that are really uh, much more expensive, sort of twenty to thirty pounds, even up to fifty pounds per device. It it is a it, you know it was a it was a big important paper at the time I think I, I'm really keen to move the conversation on to talk more about the triple bottom line as you say because but you know at the end of the day if you look at the nice guidance for asthma this is what do you what should you do if you've got a patient with asthma that's not well controlled well you should step them up nice is, you should step up therapy you should move them onto combination inhalers and nice is saying that's a cost effective strategy in terms of the health benefits to the patient versus the incremental cost so uh, you know i think we should be investing more in asthma <laughs> frankly i think i i i'm quite happy to see the cost of asthma care going up because because we don't we don't have good control of asthma in this in this country, and there are there are changes that we can make that will would be cost effective. There would be, you know, improvements in the quality of life of patients that would have the co-benefit of cutting the carbon footprint, um, that would have wider benefits for the healthcare system in terms of reducing hospital admissions and and pressure on hospitals, and would um, re reduce the carbon footprint. I think that's really important. So, you know, sometimes when people say, well, won't this cost more? I'm like, well, yeah, maybe that inhaler will cost slightly more, that combination inhaler. But our aim then is to reduce our reliance on our short-acting subutamol inhalers. So if we're using fewer of those inhalers overall, that will reduce costs. And also hospital admission is really expensive and is very distressing for the patient and has a very high carbon footprint. So if we're preventing admissions, then we're massively increasing value. So I think that message that you're that you're saying there about looking at the value overall and this being about clinical and environmental outcomes is just really, really powerful for asthma. I think one of the one really useful clinical tool is is maintenance and reliever therapy. And if you look at how we treat asthma in the UK, about a third of patients are just on blue inhalers, which means they're not getting any inhaled steroid. And, you know, the inhaled steroid is the bit that reduces the inflammation in your airways that actually gets the disease under control. So we've got a third of patients just on blue inhalers and 12% of those are using quite a lot of inhalers, you know, more than three blue inhalers 
a year that you know that's if they're using them all that's 600 puffs a year that's more than two doses a day another third of patients are on the brown puffers but half of them are overusing their uh, blue inhalers as well so you know if we're treating these patients properly we should be stepping those patients up now these are patients who are using their overusing their inhalers but they're overusing their blue inhaler and they've got poor compliance with their with their controller inhaler with their brown puffer and if you can well firstly make sure these patients have got asthma make sure they can use their inhaler correctly and put them on a combination maintenance and reliever therapy one inhaler that's got a fast acting bronchodilator with a steroid together that and and they just have that one inhaler that they use to control their disease and relieve the symptoms then you, you can you can improve patients quality of life you can re- reduce the symptoms you can reduce the risk of severe exacerbations and hospital admissions and you can have a massive impact on the carbon footprint all at the same time by just doing away with a with a blue mm. puffer altogether and uh, i guess apart from optimizing their inhaler therapy if patients do need to stay on a PMDI type of inhaler, are there other ways that they can reduce the environment impact, environmental impact of their care? So apart from being on the right inhaler, as you say, and having the right management, are there other things we can advise them thinking about their care from an environmental perspective? There are loads of things. And yeah, there's always, always improvements that can be made. I think, I think the first thing I would say is, is prioritise the controller therapy make sure you've got good compliance with your controller therapy whether that's for copd or asthma that's the inhaler that you need to prioritize and we we just don't get that right in the uk you know you're diagnosed with asthma we say okay here's here's a blue puffer take that when you've got symptoms and it will make you feel better and it does temporarily but it's giving the wrong message out to the patient that what you need is a controller medication to keep things under control i would say make sure patient knows how many doses their inhaler's got it in it because it's not uncommon for well it's extremely common for the inhalers to be thrown away when they're half full we know that from recycling studies on average meter dose inhalers have half the doses left in them when they're recycled but it's also not uncommon for patients to continue using an inhaler that's that's not giving reliable dosing because they've used it beyond the recommended number of doses. We looked at that in our hospital and found 12% of patients coming in with a respiratory exacerbation were using an empty in, inhaler, but other studies have actually found it was much, much higher than that. Inhaler technique we've talked about, I think there are non-pharmacological or other other measures to certainly consider, particularly in COPD. The inhalers have a relatively small role to play behind pulmonary rehabilitation, smoking cessation, and and vaccination. You know, the inhalers should be further down on our list of, of treatments. And then device disposal as well, making sure they're not just put into um, general household waste, but um, if possible, recycled, um, but if not, return to pharmacy for proper disposal, where the, the HFC propellant will be incinerated in medicine's waste to convert it into um, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide and other products with a far lower global warming potential, far less powerful greenhouse gases than the propellant. Yeah, I've actually been um, doing a small survey of patients in my hospital asking them what they do with their inhalers and none of them know that they should be taking them back to the pharmacy. And I was struck to read that actually less than 1% of inhalers, I think from a few years ago, are returned 
to in the pharmacy for proper disposal. What do you think the sort of main reasons for that? Is it literally just they're not getting the right information when they first get the inhaler or it's not on the packet enough or the pharmacies, not all the pharmacies actually do dispose of them properly? What do you think the barriers to improving that are? I really, I really don't know on this one. I and I'm very definitely open to ideas. I mean, we used to have a great recycling scheme that complete the cycle. It was run by GSK, um, so it was a bit precarious. And as much as it was all funded by one company, but it was a great scheme with loads of pharmacies involved. But again, it's you know less than one percent of inhalers were recycled um, during the period that was running. Uh, there's another scheme running at the moment in Leicester where they try and make it even easier by giving the giving out envelopes to patients so they can just pop them back in the post. I think they've got up to about 3% recycling rates in their region. So I, there needs to be some big behaviour change. And I don't know how you bring that about, to be honest. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I think if it seems like the patients I speak to just don't know that they're supposed to do that in the first place. But yeah, the drive's got to come from somewhere up top. I think that's right. Um, there seem to be load, loads of different aspects to this, which just mean what seems like it, it's an easy win actually isn't. There's lots of components um, with knowledge from patients and from healthcare professionals with consistent messaging. And also, I mean, I don't even know what to tell my patients sometimes because I I definitely tell them to return their inhalers to pharmacy, but they ask me about recycling. And there are some pharmacies who are involved in recycling uh, programs, but I don't know which of my local pharmacies that is. So even me as a very engaged healthcare professional can't give them consistent and accurate advice on that inhaler scheme, recycling scheme. I mean, I think all of us think you know, someone higher up should sort this out. This is a need that's common across all pharmacies, all hospitals, all GP surgeries, all patients on inhalers. There's got to be a more overarching centralised solution to this. And then we can work on that education piece around messaging at every point of prescription and dispensing. But it feels like too much for any individual or organisation to solve. I think that's right. And I think the ideal scheme would move beyond inhalers. Don't get me wrong, metered dose inhalers are the most important thing that you can dispose of correctly because they've got these powerful greenhouse gases. But ideally, a scheme would recycle blister packs and pill bottles and insulin injectors and you know all these other products as well. I think we're starting to see some of that. So there are companies, including things like TerraCycle, who who are looking at this and there have been some moves recently about blister packs and Superdrug taking those back. But again, as you say, it needs to be much more widespread. I guess the hope is that there is more discussion about this. It is on people's agenda. So maybe we'll see some movement. Definitely. I was wondering how you felt in general about the role for top-down changes in all of these um, decisions about inhalers. I've certainly, I think with lots of sustainability um, projects, you try very hard and then there's a point where you think, why doesn't someone just you know, make a law about this and it would be a lot easier for everyone? And I was sort of, especially with thinking about the sort of HFA 227 versus HFA 134, which are both hydrofluorocarbons, but with both much more potent than carbon dioxide, but HFA227 almost three times more potent than 134. And why do you think there's been such a barrier to just, you know, banning some of these HFCs like they banned CFCs? 
Well, I mean, that's a good point. We've had a massive change in the inhalers that we use already because of their environmental impact. You know, we used to have CFCs in inhalers and we had this big transition that took several decades to achieve to get over to HFA propellants. I mean, with retrospect, we chose the wrong propellant to move to. We should have tried to find something that's more environmentally friendly than the ones that we've got. And we're still trying, you know, obviously people are still working on that. Um, but that was a massive success, the switch from, from CFCs. Um, to be honest, I don't think there's much point banning HFA-227 in inhalers now because because the main use of these propellants isn't inhalers, it's other industries, and the other industries have stopped using HFA-227. So it's it's got a lot more expensive, and mm-hmm. it's 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 just going to die out because it's too expensive to use. Um, and you know, I th- frankly, the the switch away from these propellants is going to be driven by cost. I think you know, I don't think it's out the good nature of pharmaceutical companies you know they're getting more expensive and and lower lower global warming potential alternatives will be will be cheaper we do have a top down uh, strategy to phase out the hfaf gases so that's the kigali amendment to the montreal protocol but inhalers are exempt at the moment if we get more effective suitable alternatives to the current meter dose inhalers that we've got then those exemptions may be re- removed and um, I, I hope over time that that will happen that we we will just stop using these propellants uh, because we'll have you know safe effective alternatives that uh, are far less polluting brilliant I just want to ask if we sort of switch tack slightly and just think about um, how we approach conversations around the environmental impacts of healthcare with patients. So sometimes when I'm, you know, blabbing on about how important this is and how the climate crisis is a health crisis and we need to be advocating better, people um, come back to say, well, they're quite nervous about starting these conversations with patients. They don't feel very confident. They're not sure that patients want to hear about it. And there's, I think there's some worry that it's they might make patients feel bad if they talk about the impact of the care of the inhalers they're, they're using. Um, what kind of advice would you have? What, what approaches do you have? And how do you find it goes when you do have these conversations? So it definitely needs to be managed sensitively. You don't want to put people off using their, you know, life-saving inhalers and medication because they're worried about its carbon footprint. We've released abstract recently looking at the carbon footprint of poorly controlled versus well-controlled asthma. And the carbon footprint of well-controlled, the carbon footprint of poorly controlled asthma is three times as much as the carbon footprint of well-controlled asthma. And that's almost entirely due to the, the use of the blue puffer. So there, to my mind, there isn't any real tension between you know getting the right treatment for the patient and the environmental impact they go hand in hand the priority is getting the, getting the right care now there are sometimes some options and that's when i think we should be involving the patient in the decision you know when discussing choice of inhalers my my go to line is something like and this inhaler has a much smaller carbon footprint than that one, if that's something that's important to you. And that gives the patient an out. They can just say, no, I don't believe in global warming. Or, or they can say, oh, that's really interesting. You know, and you can have a, um, a, a constructive conversation about that. But you know, there are other other co-benefits of, of, you know, and I mean, so for instance, 
we, one thing we didn't talk about with the as a strategy to cut the carbon footprint would be to say if you've got well-controlled asthma and you're on two puffs twice a day of clenial 100. Yeah, it's extremely common uh, regime. You say, well, how would you like it if we reduce the number of prescriptions that you had to go and pay for from pharmacy? If your inhaler lasted twice as long as it does currently, so you're less likely to run out of it, and we could halve the carbon footprint of your treatment at the same time by giving you one puff twice a day of clenial 200 rather than clenial 100. And, and the patient would just say, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> it's a no, complete no-brainer. So there are so many sort of win-win scenarios um, that, you know, I don't, I don't experience this conflict in, in, in clinical practice. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to say I even talk about the climate in, impact of an inhaled medication with all patients. You know, if, if, uh, if and clearly if a patient can only use a metered dose inhaler, then I would, we will just do my best to get their disease under control as best I can and not, and not even mention it because it's, you know, it's not a, it's not necessarily relevant. That's really helpful. I think that's really important. Again, what you're saying is that the clinical outcomes are the most important thing, but that there are actually real wins here and co-benefits that we need to not underestimate. The other thing I would say is that actually, I think increasingly patients don't mind and also expect us to be talking about things that are wider about health. So that's true of things like air pollution as well. And actually some, some patients have said and in some patient advocacy groups that they find it odd that healthcare sort of often is silent on some of these issues which they feel are so pressing for their own health and their and their children's health so i think sometimes we worry too much and i think what you've what you've really clearly demonstrated is opening the conversation dropping things in in a natural way that fits with the conversation you're having when appropriate not every conversation actually just works really well within your clinical consultations that's really helpful. Yeah, I should just mention the Asthma UK study as well, which was presented at the the European Respiratory Society conference uh, last year, where they did a huge survey, 12,000 UK asthma patients, and asked them about their attitudes about this. And 60% said they would be willing to switch inhalers to reduce the carbon footprint. Another 21% said they might so it's a minority of patients actually who are not interested in this and you know i think i think people with airways disease do they care about the quality of the air they breathe you know Mm. they're ultimately most of them are victims of poor air quality most of the respiratory diseases that we treat are as a result of poor air quality and you know that and um, a consequence of what people are breathing in. So it's it's vitally important um, in the longer term and, yeah, for everyone's health. That's really, really helpful. It's nice to frame it that way. And I think especially as a yeah, more junior clinician, I think I often feel like they have to be two separate conversations, but that's, that's inspiring. And I'm sure lots of listeners will find that really helpful too. Um, in terms of trying to sort of generate change um, on a more of an organisational level. I know both LJ and I are part of groups in our hospitals trying to reduce the number of metered dose inhaler prescriptions. And I'm just wondering, actually, someone from my group wanted me to ask, what barriers um, did you face when you did this 
at your hospital and how did you overcome them and do you have any tips for those of us who are sort of trying to do it at an organisational level? Yeah, I think I think the first barrier was kind of as we've discussed, people people don't see this as their their job. Their job is is improving the care of patients. But if you can if you can point out that those those two absolutely go hand in hand, then usually you can win people around to the argument. Um, I think getting the disposal right in your hospital is important. Make sure these medicines are inhalers are not going in the recycling bin. I think making sure that education on inhaler technique is is there uh, for junior doctors, but also nurses, and uh, make sure the pharmacists are aware of of these things as well. Because you know that's absolutely fundamental to you know making changes in, with inhalers and um you know is is their correct use Th- there are definite benefits that can be made by not necessarily giving every patient a new inhaler as soon as they come in the door if they haven't got their own inhaler you know when they see a pd patient comes in you've put them on steroids and and nebulizers initially and then you prescribe their inhaler they haven't brought theirs in from home so they get given an in a new version of that inhaler as soon as they come in, uh, a different consultant comes along and says, oh, "I want to change that inhaler. You know, you need one with some inhaled steroid in more." St- and and so the, another one gets used. So I think you know we we've got a policy. We 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 try not to give patients an inhaler within a new inhaler within the first forty eight hours. We just let, <laughs> because it, I think that's something that can reduce waste and save money as well. That's another co-benefit of, of that scheme. Um, I think they'd be my top tips, really. That's those are useful tips. Yeah, sounds also like having the right people involved is really important. I know that that's what I'm finding. So I've got a really engaged pharmacist who's essential, really, to getting us data, helping us understand the pharmacy perspective and why we have certain inhalers of stock and others that aren't. So having engaged people from different um, bits of the hospital can be really helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, pharmacy, absolutely vital to this and you know another big win is is having the lower uh, greenhouse gas inhalers in hospital on you know so you give out salomol instead of ventolin uh, but also you've got you've got a wide range you know you've got a so that, that improves the opportunities for patients as well yeah if there's anyone listening who finds out that in their hospital they're still giving out ventolin as their number one salbutamol inhaler as standard then that's a huge easy win to get your hospital to switch over to Salomol so that is definitely one opportunity. I've just thought of another couple which which is around placebos uh, and demonstrator devices as well you know I think the placebos are really useful and the you know pharmaceutical companies will give them out for nothing and you can you can check if the patient can use the inhaler before you give them a uh, with a free placebo before you you give them an expensive actual device we took mentioned earlier about the the placebos with whistles which are really good not just for checking device handling whether the patient can handle the device and get the lip seal right things like that but also have they got the right flow rate and i think for for me a vital tool is my um my trainer aid which is a propellant free meter dose inhaler that um because if you use a placebo mdi inhaler that you get from pharmaceutical companies they've got hfa in which is just bonkers it's completely unnecessary but but clement clark do one that's that, that just goes it's got a does a realistic noise as you press the button 
and um, and it's got infinite doses. Basically, you know, there's no actual propellant in there. You can just keep pressing it because it's a, a placebo with no medicine in, and you can use that to to demonstrate. So that's another really useful tool. That's a good tip. What was the propellant-free placebo called again, Alex? Uh, it's called the the train hailer, the Clement Clark train hailer. That's a really useful tip. I'm definitely going to be using that very soon. And those I did all... get in trouble with the nurses for saying I'd rather go to clinic with without my trousers than without my train hailer. But if you're doing a virtual clinic, you don't need your trousers. <laughs> you do need your train hailer to demonstrate <laughs> technique. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We do not advocate on this podcast for clinic attendance with no trousers, <laughs> as an FYI. Um, we're probably going to go. No, fine. <laughs> Thanks so much. You've given us loads to think about already, and clearly, there's a lot of interest in this area, and increasingly, people are making changes within their own hospitals and are using some of the papers that you've very handily. Uh, produced and done lots of the work for us so thank you again for that and we'll share some of the links um, alongside our notes from the podcast. I just wanted to ask um, what's next for you, what are you thinking about at the moment, what other areas of respiratory care do you think we need to tackle to enhance our clinical effectiveness and also our um, environmental sustainability? I I think the next big thing is is going to be moving care out of hospital into their homes and you know that's seen as a big benefit for care because patients don't get that deconditioning that they get in hospital you know they're managed in a in a in a better environment for them um but but you know hospital based care is very carbon intensive and there's lots of environmental impact from hospital-based care so i think that's that's going to be the the next big challenge um part of the the sort of net zero by 2040 is you know there's all these strategies but part of it is hmm, we need to change the way we do medicine (laughs) Um, (laughs) small task yeah yeah (laughs) to make it more environmentally friendly and i think that's that's a big challenge doing that safely in a way that's acceptable to patients um, but th- that's going to have big um, environmental benefits as well. Okay, well, there's been loads to think about and talk about. Thank you so much. I will certainly. My main thing is doing... <laughs> wearing your trousers to clinic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I was quite shocked to realise that the reason we moved from dry powder inhalers to meter dose inhalers was a lot to do with cost. And it seems like quite it still seems like it's now so difficult to move back, as you say, until the costs come down. And that's something I just I hadn't really realized that sort of part of the history. But that's not really my learning point from today. That's just something um, that I guess is a, a fact of working in maybe in the NHS or a different style of healthcare system compared to other European countries that we're comparing to. But I think um, my take home is going to be that giving a patient a more environmentally friendly or lower carbon footprint footprint inhaler does not have to be sort of an isolated uh, plan separate to giving them optimal asthma or COPD care. And I think that's really powerful taking forward. And I'm going to slightly change the way I have conversations with colleagues about this. And I think that's been really useful to hear from you, Alex. So thanks. What about you, LJ? What have you what have you learned that you didn't know? 
Well, it's always really great to speak to Alex because he's always full of wisdom and has a really great way of communicating some of these messages, which which can feel complex when you start looking into this. Sometimes people feel a bit overwhelmed by the inhalers. But I think just coming back to those really key principles of what we're trying to achieve is the best outcomes for our patients. And that means the best clinical care, which does mean lower reliance on short acting beta agonists much better focus on our preventer inhalers and thinking wider about that holistic element to think about prioritizing other aspects of care like pulmonary rehab, smoking cessation, all the things we know are so high value. And then we get all these co-benefits of also thinking about how we can minimize the environmental footprint, which then has further benefits for our patients both now and in the future. So I think you've really brilliantly captured just how this is win-win-win in every way. Was there anything else you wanted to um, finish on or just a key message for people listening? Yeah, I think I think the, another key take home should be wear your trousers to clinic. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Which, when um, they're all would... virtual. <laughs> I would really recommend that people look up some of Alex's papers. There's one particularly which is really accessible, which is about asthma care in particular and how it's both a green challenge and a golden opportunity. And again, I think really brilliantly um, synthesizes some of what we said today in a really nice paper that people can share with colleagues. Um, so thank you so much again for your time and for all the work that you're doing. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Alex. And we'll include all your papers in the show notes so that everyone at home can listen. Thank you very much. Oh, guys, well done on such a fantastic and really useful interview. I mean, there's so many really brilliant stats in there, which like, which I didn't know even as a respiratory registrar, maybe I should have, um, that you know, only about 1% of people recycle their inhalers about, and on average, MDIs are only 50% empty. Is that right? 50% used um, when they're disposed. And just the pure stats about how badly the UK are doing, I think, so much to take from that and so much which individual doctors can go forward with so well done yeah it's awesome oh, i'm really glad you enjoyed it um we had a, a great time talking i really hope this episode might convince some listeners to go back to their hospitals and gp practices and maybe speak to their sustainability group or their lead about looking at the inhalers on their formulary there's also more guidance in the show notes um and apart from this lofty aim of making a difference with inhalers at their own institutions, in the last climate episode, I did set the team another climate challenge. And this was to write to someone, either an MP or a local politician or someone with power, about a climate-related issue we cared about. So I'd really love to hear about how you, how you all got on. Yeah, great. I'll, I can go first. I... Um... I'm quite an enthusiastic emailer of my local MP. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if like, there's a bit of an eye roll in her um, office when they get an email from me. But I have been emailing her over the last couple of months about um, air pollution in Lambeth, which is a uh, borough of South London, which is really badly affected by air pollution and has some of the busiest roads in South London. So I did email her about my concerns about the levels of air pollution in the borough and sort of probing her as to what they were doing. Um, and she actually forwarded me on to um, Lambeth Council website that has a really good kind of action plan on air pollution. Um, and I was pretty impressed. And actually where I ended up sort of trying to um, voice my opinions was on this site called Commonplace, which I'm sure if you look into your 
council website and stuff. It's like a platform on which you can comment on things that are going on. And Lambeth have one on, it's like a sort of consultation to people about air pollution. And so you have this map of the borough and you can basically sort of put your pin down and comment about what you think about air pollution in the area. So I decided to engage with that. And it's been really interesting seeing other people's opinions on it. And you can kind of upvote people's views. So I guess... I didn't get very far because my um, MP sort of agrees with me. But I suppose what I'm sharing is that if you go out there and look at your local council and see what they're doing, you might come across things which, um, you know, you can have a voice in and, and get involved in locally. Dear John, thank you again for your lovely email. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Please. I basically, like watch, for... I basically like watch Panorama and then, you know, I'm like, I need to email my MP immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I'll go next to you, like, guys. I mean, I, I thought I'd go along you know, email my local MP about um, something sort of topical and um, which is happening in the UK at the moment and wasn't sort of was a little bit different to air pollution and things um, and that is the, the the awful energy price crisis which is causing huge issues in the UK and beyond so with the current government policy millions may have to start deciding on heating or eating Fuel poverty is real and affects the vulnerable and the lower socioeconomic classes disproportionately. So naturally, the Conservative Party haven't done too much about it. So I wrote to my local MP, Ellie Reeves, who is Labour, about my concerns. She replied with a detailed explanation detailing her concerns with the current Conservative government plans, what she is doing to help and what she believes is the best way forward. So overall, a positive experience. Although, I suppose what I'm going to take take home from this from my experience is that next time I think I'll target my letters probably at people who need converting rather than the already converted although it was a very nice reply from her. That brings me nicely on to the letters I wrote Barney because I think maybe watching John email our local MP and getting just sort of affirmatives back I tried to tackle an issue that was sort of wider than um, you know if you've got a, a local Labour MP who widely agrees with you then you know, you might want to try writing about something that's sort of in a wider debate. So I don't know if you guys remember, but when there was the police crime and sentencing bill, um, it went through the Lords and there was a big campaign to try and uh, sort of write to lots of different members of the House of Lords to get them to sort of attend the debate and try and stop some of the um, parts of the bill. So they gave you, there was a list of Lords. I don't know how many there are. There must, must have been sort of in the over 50, maybe 100. I actually have no idea how many lords there are. But anyway, I just randomly picked like mostly conservative lords and wrote them quite a similar letter explaining why I was sort of so against the police crime and sentencing bill and trying to appeal to their um, sort of commonality because essentially it's about the right to protest which you know we want to protest maybe for environmental issues but anyone might want to protest for any different reason at some point during their life. Um, what was a shame is that I only really got replies from the Green um, members of, well, one Green member of the Lords saying, I'm literally in Parliament right now, or in the House of Lords, sorry, right now, staying up all night trying to campaign for this, but thanks for your support. And I was like, oh yeah, great, thanks. <laughs> um, but on reflection, probably I just needed to send the emails a bit earlier I think I sort of got wind of the camp the email writing campaign maybe you know 48 hours before got in a panic tried to do it all in one evening and by that time people have I think made their decisions about what, whether they're going to attend the debate 
Um, but yeah, it was an interesting experience. And I think following those kinds of campaigns can give us a bit of a power to maybe, you know, write more targeted letters in the future. That's fantastic. I think you really brought out some interesting points there. And I think this is important to think about because letter writing and emails are only going ever going to be one part of a broader campaign and they mm. can have real power, but that power maybe comes with targeting them to the right people at the right time and en masse. So mm. I think that's really important for us to consider in terms of how we make the best impact. And I guess I've slightly tried to do that with, with what I've been trying to campaign on. So I've been increasingly concerned about the effects of air pollution and have been campaigning for some time now with MedAct on this issue. And recently, this has been focused on a very particular campaign in London, um, where I've been lending my voice to the Stop the Silvertown Tunnel campaign. So this tunnel will cost £2.2 billion and will bring more traffic, including HGVs, for which there'll be a specific lane, to Newham, increasing air pollution in one of the most deprived and polluted parts of the UK, where children already have measurably smaller lung capacity. So I wrote to people I thought could make a difference. So I wrote to my local councillors and my MP by email and I sent a letter in the post to Mayor Sadiq Khan and I even crocheted him a green heart as part of a craft climate campaign. So <laughs> pop that in the post too. That would solve it pretty <laughs> That's what I figured. How could you say no to a crocheted green heart? It was a beat. Um, and I got a response from local Lib Dem councillor Nick Johnson. He reassured me that he and the other councillors are campaigning against the tunnel and for more ambitious air quality measures where I live. So that's great. I've had no reply from my M MP Neil Coyle, who is Labour, but who is a bit of a disappointment. So that wasn't a big shock. And sadly, Sadiq Khan, who has the power to cancel the tunnel as London mayor, has not responded. He has been on a bit of a media campaign trying and failing to justify this massive four-lane road in the midst of a climate crisis and he's under a lot of pressure from a lot of people this group in particular but growing numbers of healthcare professionals and air quality campaigners so I think the key thing here is that what he's doing is really by going ahead with the tunnel it really undermines his work on air quality which is such a shame because he's made real progress expanding the ultra low emission zone and if he lets the tunnel go ahead I think his mayoral legacy will be more preventable deaths from air pollution. So I really hope that this kind of increased focus from multiple angles on this issue um, makes him rethink. But we'll see, I guess. Oh, I hope he's listening. That's really inspiring, LJ. And uh, yeah, I think um, hopefully he makes the right call. We could send him so. a tape recording of the podcast. In the post. Yeah. That is a great idea. I think whatever works. So yeah, great plan. Awesome. Okay, that's a really nice broad range of stuff that we've been up to. Um, we what what have we done so far? So we've done no plastic for a month. We've done we've gone plant based diets. We have tried to use our voice. Um, I think it's time for another challenge. LJ, what what do you think you've got for us this this month? It definitely is time for another challenge. Um, so I'm on a week off and I've been sort of wandering around doing nice things in London. And I was sort of wandering through the shops and then thinking, mm, there's quite a lot of fast fashion going on here. Is this really where I want my money to go? Is this how I want to have an impact on the world? Do I want to buy a three pound t-shirt from a high street unnamed chain? Or do I want to be a bit more conscious about what I'm buying and what message I'm sending and who I'm supporting and actually who's making these clothes. So my challenge for this month is to think about where your clothes are from, try to buy nothing new, 
which might be easier or less easy depending on how much you normally buy clothes. But have a real look through your wardrobe and think, where do I get my clothes from and how sustainable are these choices? Great challenge. Um, uh, my, well, yeah, it all depends on whether my my mum, my wife, or my sister, I think, is pretty much it. Buy my clothes. Um, like, are they sustainable? That's very, very embarrassing, Barney. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody listens to the end of the podcast, there's probably like the minority, they probably stop listening by that. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Audrey. Excellent. I think that's a, that's a great challenge. We'll work on it and we'll let you know how it goes. This might, this might not go in, but I'm just thinking ahead. The one thing I do actually need to buy is new pants. What are you meant to do for mm. your pants? Mum buys your pants, though. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just... <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's get commando, John. Just, just sort it out. Get a fig leaf and... But maybe that's your challenge for the month. Leaf. What's the most sustainable pair of pants you can find? Because yeah. oh, that's know, I'm not buying second-hand pants, absolutely not. No, so what's no, the most sustainable no. pair of pants? But did you crochet Sadiq Khan any pants by any chance? I didn't, but that'd be an option. <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe for next month. That is a yeah, brilliant. Actually. Thanks very much, guys. That's fantastic. Thank you, LJ and Katia. Brilliant interview. Well done. Um, Loads to get from that and a great challenge coming up. So um, until next time, listeners. Until next time. Bye. 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 You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, Dr. Jonathan Hudson and Dr. Katia Florman and Dr. LJ Smith. Information and links from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook or Instagram. Special thanks goes to St. George's Healthcare and HEE for their generous grant. If you'd like today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch for our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of a guest and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.